0: That was a fun time, huh, guys? Yeah. I think we love that. I think the adults like that more than the kids, which is awesome. Um, if you need Bibles, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, Leon will have Bibles for you, so you can get those. If you have, we want to encourage you to bring uh, bring your Bible. Uh, Leon already mentioned that there'll be some, there's some questions for you as you're um, going through the text. And also want to encourage you, do we still have... Um, uh, the documents, the Colossian documents back there and all. So if you have not picked up a packet and you're going through the book of Colossians with us, uh, we would love to offer that to you. As you walk out of this auditorium to your left, there'll be a packet with information uh, about Paul, Paul. Um, There's a reference sheet as you can learn more about this theology and different aspects like that, and specifically questions about the book of Colossians, uh, which has been broken down in segments as we go through. So we'd love to offer that to you as well. Uh, This is a very intense uh, text. If you guys are familiar with uh, this particular text, um, probably one of the highest um, passages of Christology uh, in the whole Bible. All right. And so uh, we come to this. And this is very interesting because I want to encourage you uh, to to sort of get your mind ready a little bit. Because uh, I was wrestling with how do you actually how do we go through this passage uh, and, and make sure that I'm, I'm being faithful to Jesus? And it seems like uh, my goal today is going to be kind of, we always exegete, right? We always try to understand what's make, make, known what the Bible is saying, right? To say, what is the text saying and bringing that out so that we can apply it to our lives. Uh, specifically here, we're going to really focus in. It's going to be highly teach focus, highly teaching focus, because I, as I prayed about it and thought through and was looking at and studying this, the text, I just felt like, man, we want people to clearly understand what's going on here in this passage, Okay, so we're going we're gonna to just methodically walk through different aspects uh, so that we have a, a, a clear view, by God's grace, of, of Christ. All right, guys, so you want to get your pencils ready. We're going to be looking at all kinds of different aspects. Um, if you have questions, we always encourage you to please ask those, especially if they were to honor the body, um, be an encouragement to the saints as a whole. If there's something specific you have, please come and, and check, and hang out with me afterwards, and I'd I'll, I'll love to... Uh, to talk with you, um, so just be thinking about that as you ask questions. If you have questions of clarity, please ask those because we want to make sure that you're understanding what we're talking about. Okay, so as you know, we are, we do books of the Bible here. We're in the Book of Colossians. We're in the first chapter of Colossians, hitting toward the end, and we're doing 15 through 20 today. Um, guys, I thought we could do 15 through 20 today, and then everybody would jump out of a window because our heads would explode, or we could take it in different chunks. And so I tried all I could, I tried the best I could to try to think about how to get these five verses in one week, and I just, I just couldn't do it. So we're going to do half, we're trying to do about half now, and then we're going to try to do another half next week. I really tried, I tried to give it to college try, man, and it just wasn't working out. So, um, or we could stay here to 2.30, who wants to do that? So, all right. <laughs> I thought I wouldn't get any takers on that. So uh, we're going to jump right in. Just encourage you, if you're new, and you get this in Uh we study uh, books of the Bible because we want to make sure that that my flesh and that your flesh doesn't get in the way of understanding the whole counsel of God. Uh, the reality is, left to ourselves, we would probably stay in those books that are kind of convenient, that are kind of safe. Uh, we'll probably stay in those texts that are kind of safe and maybe have a few controversial things just to keep people coming or whatever. But that's not what we do at MacGab. We are serious about the glorification of Jesus. And so we're saying we don't care what the text is. We're going to walk through the scriptures because God has inspired the scriptures proper. Um, and so we've done Galatians, John, Genesis. You guys have been unbelievable going through those books. And um, I had someone make fun of me yesterday. Like, man, y'all still in Genesis? I ain't not seen him in like two years. And... Um, <laughs> I was like, we're out of it, man. Last week. No, but uh, and so here we are in Colossians. I hope you've been encouraged thus far uh, to give you a snapshot. Uh, it's very interesting what's happening here because Christology really matters uh, in as far as thinking about Jesus. When you look at this picture here, uh, I want to I want to encourage us in something. Now, I want you to I want you to really put your thinking caps on with me and I want you to really think about uh, your life. I see you guys smirking like, where is he going with the whole weird Jesus guy? That's my point, and kids, this is my point here, is that that's not Jesus, okay? And the reality is that we all have, when you say Jesus Christ, when you talk about Jesus, we all formulate some kind of thought in our mind. And the sad reality is that many of our thoughts are ahistorical. What I mean by that is that that's why in our society you can have a blonde Jesus, you can have a Jesus with an afro, you can have a Jesus. You can you can put Jesus and make him whatever you want in our society. And people you walk in people's houses who are even Christians and they will have an historical figure, which means that it doesn't really matter who Jesus really was. As long as you're thinking about this Christ image person. But you can't do that. Right. I mean, you wouldn't put uh, blonde hair on Martin Luther King, would you? Right. Would you put an afro on George Washington? I mean, he had like two Afro puffs here, but he didn't have, <laughs> right? You, you wouldn't do that. Why wouldn't you do that? It's not who they were. They're real people. Guess what? Jesus is a real person. And so you can't just make them up to be this figment of your imagination and say, well, because I'm a black man, I'll make them black. And because I'm white, I'll make them white. And because and I'm Korean, I'll make Korean. You can't do that. Because he is a historical figure. And when you do that, you make him ah, historical. It's almost you've taken him out of history, and he's just this floating being uh, with pixie dust, and he just does things for us. Christology matters, guys. What you think about Jesus matters. So that is not Christ. We all have a Christology. Even unbelievers have a Christology. That is, you have a, a thinking about Christ, Right? Christ the study of. You have a study of Christ, even if you're not a believer. And so the question is, what is your Christology? What do you think about Christ? Because I would tell you, I mean, Christ is the best safeguard um, against most forms of heretical teaching. If you think about understanding clearly who Christ is, it will protect you uh, from entering into some cult and doing something crazy. This question, guys, is very important because, you, you know, there's some questions you can kind of mess up. You don't want to mess this question up. This question matters hugely. This question actually deals with the reality of salvation. How you and who you view as Christ matters to where you will be and who you are as a person. So that's why I, just, I want you to go into this with me very soberly. And passionate about understanding, and, and looking and thinking about yourself as we talk through things and saying, "Do I know that?" I'm encouraged, praise the Lord. Did I know that? Oh, I actually thought this. I ain't gonna tell nobody, but now I can renew, I can renew my mind. Whatever you need to do, that's cool. But you want to leave, and you want to understand, and you want to be conversant about who your Jesus is. All right. So let to jump into some stuff. I'm walking through this, guys, because I really want us to understand this text. So when you go to it, when you're spending time in the scriptures. Uh, you will be able to look at this, and then hopefully it 'll lead toward worship so that 's why it 's going to be kind of academic, but I want you to stick with me here, okay guys all right guys all right first this text and i usually don 't do this, but this is very important this text is um was originally a poem, so that 's why um it 's almost like doxology this will be a great uh, uh, this these scriptures will be great to like make a song because originally it 's a poem. <clears throat> So it was led toward doxology. This, this, this right here was almost Paul. When you, when you look at how Colossians have been going thus far, he begins by encouraging the saints. You guys are awesome. The gospel's going forth. It's great verses one through eight, right? Then he talks about, hey, and, and, uh, now I want to pray for you guys. I want to pray you're more like Christ. I want to pray that you're understanding and get into the word. And I pray that that will give you the fruit of the spirit, which we see are all kind of character traits and things of that sort. And then think of what God has done. And almost he just leads into the sense of, of this poem here that just like leads him to a sense of like, man, look at Christ. And he jumps into uh, these stanzas. Now, the first stanza, I want you to see or you can say strophe is verses 15 through 17. Now, now stick with me. <clears throat> it celebrates the role of Christ in creation. As he's trying to make a particular point, why is this important? Because we're dealing with people of the day who would say you need a little more, okay? They're saying, okay, well... You know we're we're gnostics. We we are very serious about getting wisdom, about getting those deeper things of God. Um, we you need you need something more, and so Christ Christ is saying through Paul that actually you don't need more because let me help you understand who Christ is, and based on who Christ is, it's going to hopefully determine that you get everything you need in Him because He's everything, and so that's why He even starts with this, these stanzas here. Notice what He does here. He says. That basically, look at Christ in creation. Okay, that's, that's all, everything that's ever been created. Anything you can think of. The scriptures talk about even things you can't think of. Because there's a lot that's been created that you don't even know about. There's a lot in the spiritual realm and in the invisible that you and I have no clue about. God says, I created that too. Stuff you don't even know about. And so he talks about, look at Christ's role in all of creation. But guess what? God does something. He gets murdered, and then he rises from the dead. And what does he do? He starts new creation. And so I love this. He starts humanity, and then he starts, because we jack up, we jacking humanity up because of sin. He's so gracious, he starts new humanity. And so that's why you need verses 18 through 20, because we don't even stop with creation, praise the Lord. God says, you got to first look when you understand Jesus. you got to understand Jesus from the perspective of creation, but then you have to understand Jesus from the perspective of new creation. That's us. We have to understand the whole history, whole redemptive history. And as you read in the text, I want you to also notice you might want to circle firstborn. Very important word. Notice he uses firstborn a couple of times in this small pericope, verses 15 through 20. <laughs> And so he's going to make a statement. And what I'm doing is I'm giving, again, if you're in teaching classes and stuff like that, you know, in seminary, they tell you, like, always oh, keep the tension. But always, every once in a while, I won't do that in this body. And you've noticed that because I'm, I'm more concerned with not having you go, wow, this, led, this, this talk led to some big crescendo versus you understanding the text. I want you to get this, guys. Okay? So what he's doing is so I'm giving you all the sauce right now. I'm giving you the whole summary. He's saying Christ is the agent. And I love this guy. Check this out. Isn't that Cool. So Christ is the agent, He just got this, I'm really excited. Christ. So Christ is the agent of creation, right? Primeval work of creation, we talked about that term, right? The beginning, all the, the stuff that He's created. He is the agent of that, and then He's the agent of redemption, right? Of seeing a, a world going down toward creation, to decreation, then what He does, He redeems us to make us new creation. And what he does, he's the agent of all of that. So this is what the author wants us to get in this passage. That's Jesus. Let's look at the passage a little more. Before we do that, I want to talk about um, a structure that, again, somewhat academic, but I think it's very important for you to understand literary structure as you read the scriptures. And that's this issue of chiasm. Have you guys ever heard of chiasm? Chiasm. Um, <clears throat> Chiasm is a very important literary term in the Bible. Okay, uh, This this is a, 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 a something that happens a lot in the grammar of the scriptures. And, and so hopefully when you get good at looking at it and seeing it, or well, what I would encourage you is when you think you see it, you can even Google and say, is this a chiastic structure? And there will be many people way smarter than you and me who will say, yeah. Or, hey, here, you know, here's a passage on this, or look at this, you know. Um, but I would also encourage you uh, to be trying yourself to figure out chiastic structures. Let me just go through this. It's a writing style that uses a unique repetition pattern for the clarification of emphasis. Basically, what happens is you have a sandwich. And what, and what a chiastic structure does, what the, what, the, uh, what the author does, he says, I want to make a real serious point. So what he does is he'll, put, he'll say something in the beginning, and then he'll say something in the end that's kind of the same. Or maybe he'll change a word uh to make you focus on like you know the specific the specific aspect of the word he changed then he'll add two other layers that are kind of the same in the middle and then he'll pop something right in the middle so these will be alike so a one a two b one b two and then you'll have C and usually with a chaotic structure um you really like like what you you're trying to get to the point of what C is okay This happens all throughout scripture. And so that's what he's doing in this text here. So it's a repetition of similar ideas in the reverse sequence. He organizes themes much like a sandwich. All right, for example, you see this? Stick with me here. So you see, you have, this is the text we're looking at next couple weeks. This is a chiastic structure. Okay? So you see you have your two A's there, guys? Okay, you have your, so you have here verses 1 through 3, you have, he is the image of the invisible God in verse 15, okay? But down here, you have he is the beginning, okay, in verse 18. Firstborn, verse 15, firstborn, in verse 18. Down you have for by him all things in heaven and earth, right, all things here. For in him, all the fullness of God and through him to reconcile himself to all things. So you have this sort of theme of all things being sandwiched in between those. You see that, guys? But notice something. He has here and be, and he is before all things, and he is the head of the body of church and the church. And then notice right here in C. So all this is happening, but he said, and in him all things hold together. That probably what, what Paul wants us to get is that God is everything, he does all things. And all this is saying, him being creator of all, both invisible and visible, both created and uncreated things, um, him being the the, the firstborn from the dead, him being from the beginning, is to help us understand that in Christ, everything has its being and holds together. That without Christ, he's not some deistic figure who did something and then dipped, but that without Jesus, there would be nothing. Again, somewhat literary, uh, we'll, we'll keep this online just so people can see it, but I want you to take this as an example um, as you continually do your own time in the scriptures to learn chiasm, very important literary tool as far as being, um, interpreting the text accurately and just understanding where an author is trying to go, all right? That's just chiasm. Now. We still in not begin to text yet because I got a couple more things and then we'll jump right in. Check this out. This is uh, <clears throat> the first couple of, uh, verses we'll be doing today. And what, where I want to break this down, guys, is it seems to me that you have in the text that we're looking at today, very powerful text, you have two titles and three prepositional phrases. So that's what we'll be looking at, okay? Is that, is that Paul begins the discussion by saying, you want to know who Christ is, let me give you two major titles, and then what I'll do is I'll wrap them up with three prepositional phrases, okay? So we look at that. So in doing that, he gives us the two titles. He tells us that first, Jesus, if you're understanding, you, you want to know who Jesus is as an unbeliever in here right now, or you're a believer and you quite haven't really dealt with the reality, you just kind of know, okay, Jesus died across from my sins, but who is Christ first, He is the image of the invisible God. And the focus of that is the issue of preeminence. Okay? He's the firstborn of all creation. The focus of that is priority. We'll jump into that in a moment. And then what he does, and this is great, guys. He gives us uh, three prepositional phrases, right? He tells us, by him, through him, and for him. And we'll look into that. That's just a breakdown here. All right. And again, as you know, we usually I usually walk through the text and things. that are, So I'm giving us this sort of this preview because I want us to understand how to look at the text and how to interpret the scriptures specifically in this passage, because it's a hard passage. Now, let's begin. Um, he tells us he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. This is Jesus. What does that mean, right? It says um, image. The word, it's the same word, the Greek word it's where we get we get the word icon from the image. Um, and I think these questions pop in our mind. I know they pop in mind, so I didn't know I was going to see if you thought the same. What does this mean? Is it a picture? Uh, is he talking about copy of an original? Because when we think from that perspective, we still don't, we we go, well, there's something missing. Because if I give you a picture of my boy, it's still not my boy. So you feel like, well, is that what he means? Um, is he a created being, right? If he's a firstborn, <laughs> is he a created being? And and we were not the first people to think this because the platonic thought uh, the big thing right now was like, how can God be known? This is what these guys. thought. how how can you get to the deeper things of God? So this is a very important question. This is the reason why he brings it up. I propose to you that he begins by saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God, because these guys are asking, how can you know the deeper things? How can you really know God? And what Paul's response is, is you can actually know God. Guess why? Because he's Jesus. And so here's how he proves it. This is what he says here. Look at some other scripture verses. Um, I love this text here. This is John 14, verse 9. Look what's going on here. He says, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? And I think this is one of the most street statements. I mean, again, maybe I'm misinterpreting this. I love what he says this. He says, Philip, um, do you not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, so as the Father? I love the way he says that. You know, it's like a brother on the street. Like, man, how you gonna tell him? Say, show you the Father. Look at me. You like, see me? You see the Father? And so, so he's telling Philip. He's like, why would you say, show us the Father when you hanging out with me? That he's he's, all, he's almost surprised at Philip. Look what it says in John one. Um, he says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is a, on, at the Father's side has made him known. I love this. That word, has made him known, is the same word we get the word exegete from. His point is, what, what Jesus does is he exegetes the Father to us, as it were. He helps us understand. He, he pulls out and helps us see who the Father is. That's what Jesus does is that Jesus makes the Father known. He literally says, you want the meaning of the Father? Look at Christ. That's what he does. Jesus exegetes us. So basically, when he talks about this whole uh, image piece, his whole point is not like us in, a, in the 21st century. We're not, he's not just thinking, oh, a picture or a copy. He's thinking the nature and being of God has been perfectly revealed. We see this also in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Let me say that again, the image of God has been perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. He's saying the invisible, here's the whole point. Why does he use the word? Why does he say the image of the invisible God? His point isn't that you get a mere replica. His point is that finally, in Christ, the invisible has become visible. Is that now you can clearly see who God is. Now, so that's the first nuance to image. That he's the image of the invisible God. That he is actually the jail. He, he, ex, he exeges the Father to us. He shows us the Father. He's fully God. This is what he does. But also there's another nuance. Can you say, well, why does he use image and say, mess all mess us all up like this? Because he's trying to communicate two things, guys. I'm proposing to you that the invisible piece focus on the issue of the visible now being, um, the invisible being visible. So, him talking about the, the reality that, that God is fully exegeted in Jesus. I think the image piece is actually dealing with a whole other issue. So, he says both because that's how cool Paul is. The image issue is dealing with antiquity during that time. Go back to the Old Testament, look at what happens in the first century. Whenever a kingdom was taken over and there was a new ruler, as it were, what would they do? They would set up a statue. They would set up images. And the reason why they would set up images is for a couple of reasons. So that you would know that that king, he is now ruling that place. But also you can get kind of a picture of who he is. That's what I look like. I, I, I took you all over I look like that guy. Yeah, that's me. And so image is actually not dealing with the reality of his equality with God here. Actually image is dealing with the reality of reign and rule. Is that he's saying he is the image of the invisible God. Is that he is fully God. He exegesis the Father to us. We can finally see who God is because we can see Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is not just some heir. He's the ruler. He didn't just inherit this thing, you know, some little bum on the street, but actually you're a prince. Okay. No, he is the ruler. That God is the ruler and we can see God in Christ. The nature and being of God has been perfectly revealed. The invisible has become visible. So he says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I mean, just packed words, helping us understand image. The invisible become invisible in Jesus. Well, what do you mean firstborn of all creation? Um, I think, again, firstborn, I think, oh, this. Right? I think, well, okay, he was the first one born. Okay, that's, that, is that what he's talking about here? Firstborn of all created things. Well, then that makes you say, okay, well, is he a created being? If he's the firstborn, was he born? How does firstborn have any importance? Tell me about the importance of the firstborn in the Bible. Again, I want to teach us, that when you hear things and you see vernacular in scripture, you can't just say, OK, I'm going to plop it into my 21st century mind. you got to ask yourself, what was being communicated? What do people think of when they thought of firstborn in antiquity? Thank you. OK, firstborn didn't necessarily mean the oldest cat. What? Right. It meant inheritance. So he's trying to help us understand, he's trying to, actually, I'm proposing, he's, he's continually bringing out more meaning out of the aspect of image. And so he's trying to say, hey, I want you to understand this whole concept of inheritance. Now, let's look at some scriptures here. See what happens, the beauty of what happens throughout scripture and how God begins to prove this to us, but also see how he prepares his people. He starts off by telling us in Genesis 15, right, he says in verse 4 through 7, He says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. We're talking heir already here. He's talking to good old Abe, right? And he says, and uh, he he brought him outside and said, look toward the, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And so we see a couple of things here. We see inheritance. Thanks, sis. And what are what are you, what are they inheriting? What is he supposed to inherit, guys? Don't get nervous. Okay, land, and now, now, now again, we, we're on this side of the New Testament, so we know what's up, but I want you to put yourself back there What all you got right now is this. So you know you're getting land, you know you're getting people and descendants or something. You're getting some stuff. You don't know how much. You did not know, you're getting authority, you're getting, you're getting that, you're getting that basic, remember that recreative, that mandate is being placed upon you again. Now you get to do what you were asked to do uh, in the beginning in Genesis. So you know that, okay? Well, something happens. Check this out. So that was Abraham. He was he was the heir. He was supposed to get it. it was supposed to be Abe's, right? And you think his family? You think firstborn, okay? But then in Exodus four, we see that it changes. It moves from Abraham to now Israel is the firstborn. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord: Israel is my firstborn son." And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And I love how he talks about a whole people group as a son. You notice that? And he's like, guess what? This there now, so now we've seen it kind of move on where it was Abe, and then he's continually fulfilling that promise. But now we see he's saying, hey, Israel's my firstborn son. Make sure you treat them right. Well, it continues on. Because not a question here, if you're reading this text here, okay, what's going to happen? Are they going to get the promise? Are they going to get the land? Are they going to get the stuff they're supposed to get? Let's see. Well, something happens. We get to Psalms. In Psalm 89, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Oh, my goodness. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand firm forever. For him, something's happening here. All of a sudden, we see throughout history that things begin to change. And in Psalms, we see that there is a king who's going to be a a bigger king than all the other kings. And, uh uh-oh, something changes where the inheritance isn't just a specific land or a specific people, but it seems the scope is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happens as you read through the scriptures is that God begins to unveil a plan, namely, that the Jewish God is actually the God of the world. And that what what we were always to inherit was actually not just Jewish land, but we're going to inherit what the God of the world had us to inherit because he's the God of the whole world and not just a Jewish God. If he was just a Jewish God, then all you can give us is Jewish land. But since you're actually the God of the world, I guess you can give us everything. And so it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the whole world. And So all of a sudden, the scope goes to its proper state. And that is the God of the world is the heir of the world. And that he's the firstborn son because of inheritance. He's the firstborn son because of his pre-existence. This is always all his. And here's what I love about it. I love the fact he's the heir. It's all his. And then what he does is he shares it. And he lets you and me be co-heirs. Where do you see that in Scripture? Usually, if you're the heir, you do your thing. How gracious the Lord is. Firstborn guys, he's describing the reality of preexistence, that he's before all things. Okay, that's assumed that he's before all things. But also, what I want to make sure that you're getting here is he's describing this reality of position, reality of rank and air. And so he's it's like looking into a barn and you've got these different glass panes and he's allowing us to see Jesus from all these different angles so that we understand fully who Christ is, so that it leads to worship. And I tell you, I struggle, guys, because I was like, man, how do you apply this stuff? Me and my sweetheart were sitting last night watching the football games, and I'm like, baby, how do you apply all this crazy theology? And we wrestled with it for, like, real a while, like most of the night. Let's get to that in a moment. Paul finds in Christ, guys, that he's a key of all creation. So that's what he's saying there. Uh, Caleb. to the the Jewish Good question. It seems to me that he's throwing in like Jew. Oh, so Caleb was asking... Thank you. Caleb was asking, does this, is it seem more to some specific... He's being more specific in the firstborn sense to really connect to the jews in the audience because you have jews in the audience um you know what i i always tell people the crowds were always not monolithic i mean you always have you know, like different kind of people, and I think the arguments weren't like, you know, they weren't just like like homogeneous arguments. I think he's trying to connect to different peoples, and that's why he's using different terms. We're more of talking about Gnosticism and wisdom in some aspects, and then focusing on the history in another aspect. But, but what always happens with Paul, and I want us to understand this, because we think he's supposed to just talk Greek and just not deal with uh, his Judaics his Judaistic history, but what I love what he does is he wants people to do a spiritual chin-up, and that when you come to Christ, he, he assumes that you understand, or he wants you to get, that you're now entering into a history that is yours, and that, that, that the history of the Old Testament, that the history of the people of God doesn't like, it's not like, okay, now I'm Greek, and I just do my own thing as, I, as a New Testament Christian, but that we're grafted into a history. We're grafted into, now, and that's why we sit here and we understand Abraham. I'm not Jewish, right, but now that's my boy because we're all family now because I love Christ. And so in the same way he's asking everybody get on the, get on the wagon, buddy. Get on the train cuz this is this is the family right here, the family line. Here's your new family line. Learn it. Right? Um so how and why does Jesus get to be the ruler is a question that I would ask, which I think is answered in verse 16. What makes him king? The scriptures say in verse 16, you see that guy. So by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Uh, just real quick. Uh, if you notice, I put down here. Um, I talk about highest order of angelic realm. That's this whole piece of when you usually see like this whole thrones or domains or rulers or authorities. Uh, you know, there's again some different nuances here. He could be t- talking kings and actually human rulers, but also usually there is there is some nuances there where he's discussing talking about principalities and the spirit realm and his point there. Is that the most powerful thing in all of creation, the stuff you can think of that's been created? Because Satan, again, is not some evil God. He's an evil angel, and God created him. And so he's saying all the things you can think of that were created, basically he made them all. That's his point here, right? Now, notice what you do here. What I've done here is I've taken these out and I wanted to do these three prepositions just so hopefully we can get this. And then uh, we'll spend some time applying, and hopefully we'll be encouraged in the gospel and head to our houses to worship Christ. So what I've done is I've kind of rewrote verse 16. So all things were created um, in heaven, and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rules and authorities. Um, and then you can, if you were to look at that, you could take this all, all things were created through him and for him or all things were created and pop that up here, and it's almost like you're just saying, for by him all things are created, and these are all the things. Basically, all of creation. I want to start with the whole the whole reality of all things being created in him, or by. depends on your translation. Uh, in Greek, that's the date of a sphere. Uh, you learn that. And what, what that means is basically that that in Christ, like, the sphere of Christ, everything came to being in him. And what's interesting is we kind of get this redemption we, because we see it. We, Because we, we, historically we saw, we understand historically that, that he died on a cross, right? And he paid for our sin. And so we get, okay, in Christ, I'm redeemed, right? In that same picture, the Holy Spirit wants to train your mind and my mind to see creation in that way. That's his point. It's the same way you can easily see that the sphere of Christ being, being the, the nucleus and the reason and the, what they call the sumum bonum of, 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 of why we are redeemed. He says in the same way, in Christ, everything was made. Do you see that? In Christ, everything was made. And everything owes its existence to him. If he made everything, then everything owes their existence to King Jesus. Is a natural conclusion, right? Now, that's significant because that then means um, that he was before everything was created. This is a very simple, logical deduction. But he's trying to make the point that, guys, you guys... Because, see, again, remember, in the, in the thought of this day is that you had this stuff, and I think I go into it a little bit here... Um, this distances him from creation as a me, as its means and ends, and and that's and that's what he's trying to do. Is he's trying to he's trying to combat the popular thought of the day where they wanted to have creation be part of what was created. And so that's why you had you you guys remember this? You took your philosophy class. I remember in college, I didn't really do well. I didn't really like the philosophy stuff too much. But you know you had you had Heraclitus and he would talk about uh, the the stuff and like there's and then you had plat, you know Platonic thought and the forms. Remember the forms and, and the demiurge and all that stuff. And there was like, oh, you guys look at me like I'm crazy. Well, I didn't say it; these guys were saying it, and everybody was believing them. And it was like basically there was stuff that 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 people were, were trying to move toward, and it was all this stuff that made all things right. It was these forms; they didn't know what they were, but they called them forms. And then uh, they called it. And there was this real, one big thing called the demiurge, and they supposedly like, created all these things. And, and that was basically the thought of the day. Well, if you think like that, a couple things first. Then then creation is impersonal. OK, um, and secondly, it's, it's, it's not it's not a person. Uh, and so he's trying to show and you and you become pantheistic in your approach. Right. Because if everything is created and, and there's nothing that created and stands outside of creation, then you should just go ahead and worship everything. Do you see that? If everything created each other, then why do you why is there something distinct that you should worship? And so what Paul is doing here is when he starts talking about this reality that all things, everything you can think of, angels, uh, good angels, demons, bad angels, people, trees, rocks, all things were created by someone who stands outside of creation that was uncreated, that's other, separate. Then now the natural conclusion is that you should worship him because he's the only one that stands outside of creation, which goes smack in the face of the popular thought at the time. So, his point is to distance himself from... uh, It distances Jesus from creation. That he's the means of creation, he's why creation exists, and he's the end of creation. That creation exists for him. The creator is to be worshipped because he's not creation. It's that simple. You hear that? In Jesus' mind, he's going... I sh- I'm supposed to be worshipped because I'm the only one who's never been created. So that was uh, in him and through him. And now we have uh, for by him, all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. Man, um, this is hard. This is't hard, because I was like, okay, what do you do with this? Everything was created for this Jesus. So we, so in this, we just do a replay. We just realize, okay, he's the image of the invisible God, the, the very understanding, the very picture of God we see in Christ, that basically the invisible becomes, becomes visible in Christ. But not only is he, but he's also this ruler, and he's this reigner. Uh, that he's pre-existent before all things. He stands outside of creation. And that he created everything. He in, a, he, in essence, he created the sinners. He created the cross that he was murdered on. He created everything. And then it says that all these things are, that he did all this. It was, it was in him, in his sphere. It was through him, through his power, which is Trinitarian, um, which I don't know if I even had a chance to go through that, that's Trinitarian in nature, trying to show you how the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit was working this thing out in all of creation. But finally, it's all for him. That everything that's created is for Jesus. Have you ever really, I mean, this one's hard, because Sarah and I, we came to grips, we said, well, that seems so plain, I think I get that. And I was like, well, how do you apply this? And I really struggle. how do you apply this? And I I felt like the Holy Spirit just gave me the grace to say, that's the point, is that you're too familiar with that. That's the issue, is that you don't realize that you are in a world that basically tells us, let's think of the history and the scope of creation, what the world does is the world tells us that the world is created for us. So then I am born into a world that lies to me and says, no, Eric, the world is for you. People are to be used by you. Things are to be your possession. It's supposed to be about you. And then I come to Christ and I get this opportunity to be newly human and to be deprogrammed by our King Jesus, the creator, who says, no, the world was created for me. But I've been told this by the world by soul for so many years, and I live in that environment, and it still screams to me, and then I still have an old sin nature that gravitates what the world tells me. My old sin nature wants to believe the lie. But the Bible, by God's grace, is saying, no, everything was created for me. Everything. And there's a struggle. There's a struggle. The struggle is, when do you and me really get on the train of saying, I, in my flesh, don't want to enjoy that the world's created for Christ. I don't, I, in my flesh, I don't like that. I want the world to be created for me. And then what does it look like for us to spend time asking God to do something in our hearts? Or do we play the game and act like, no, I get it. I, I want to worship Christ. I just want God to get everything. And I don't have a problem with this. And we never really experience sanctification in that area, in the deep, deepest area of our hearts. And that is this issue of idol worship. Ask yourself if the world was created for Christ, everything, the rocks, you know, Sarah was like, "Man, that makes me even think of you know the difference. You know, you get you get you know you get people who love humanitarian efforts and who love insects and all this stuff. But the thing is, you can get caught up in all that stuff, and you we can love the same thing for different reasons. And it seems to me that sometimes our bent is to maybe like shun people who are all caught up in creation, and then we forget to really enjoy creation. But the reason why we enjoy creation is because it's all for Christ. So, I, so I've been asking Sarah, I was like, what does it look like for our body to live a life, and ask yourself this, where you see everything in your life being for Christ? Your kids, your marriage, your sexuality. You know, if you're dating someone. Do you see that relationship being for Christ or for you? Because if you see it for yourself, then you'll have sex with that girl before uh, making a covenant with her, which is about you. Um, Do you see your your kids? Do you see them being created for Christ or for you? Your marriage. Do you see um, the joys of education being for you or for Christ? your resources, your money? Do you really see your stuff being for Jesus? At a core level. Is everything for him? That seems to me to be a very good application. To ask yourself, in your life, in your relationships, in your job, if this is true Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 then how do you then shun relationships that point you to Christ How do you how do we not sup in the scriptures How do we not sacrificially give How do we not worship Think about it, guys. We'll, uh, we'll continue on next week, and we'll look at how this applies to the local body, applies to the church. be some very intense passages. We're going to get to the nucleus in, chapter, in verse 17. Here's what we're going to do right now. I want you to let that sit. And as we sing this song, I want you to think about Jesus in that reality. And I want you to ask yourself, what does it look like for you to practically begin to look at your life, be held accountable, to say, the things in my life are for Christ? What does it look like for us as a community? What does it look like for us to be a gospel-centered community when each one of us are doing things solely for Christ? We're going to sing out, and then we're going to take a um, tithe. We, we just love having uh, you guys come and, and worship with us. If you're a visitor, keep your wallet to your side. We don't, we don't want your money. That's not what this is about. This is a continual aspect of worship for us. We worship the Lord because he's given us everything. As the scriptures say, this is all for him. And so this is our response to that by giving him uh, what he's given us, giving it back to him, and asking him to extend it in this community. If you get that as a um, believer and you're a visitor, worship your king um, by giving your resources to Christ. If you don't, relax and enjoy, and, um, and hopefully you will be experiencing the gospel here. I'm going to pray for as you. you get that as Mac Avers, uh, so I remind you, I'll put your, uh, your response card in a Tide Basket if you um, are a visitor. Again, thanks for um, worshiping Christ. I pray. You would um, be a Christian loving Jesus. And if this is the first time you heard the gospel, I pray that this would be your first act of worship. That, that scripture is so clear. I don't know how else to talk about the gospel than to say Jesus is absolutely everything. He's created everything. Uh, he's always been. And he's given us all things. And then he tells us everything, even your life, everyone, every piece is for him. And so the way you would get to experience that is by giving your life to Jesus by faith and saying Jesus I have, I repent of the madness of thinking I'm my own God. I want to confess my sin to you. I ask that you to cleanse my heart. Um, make me your child. And Christ says he'll do that by faith. You recognize Jesus as the king of the universe, and he says he'll be your king. Let's pray, and then we're going to continue to worship the Lord and sing out and just enjoy Christ uh, today. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for the reality of the gospel. Thank you.